Hi, I'm David Freudberg, host of Humankind. I've been thinking a lot lately about civility. Of course, basic politeness and exercising good manners is essential. But I think civility, real civility, goes deeper. It means to choose our words carefully and thoughtfully in non-hurtful ways. It means to be respectful of how another person sees the world even when we heartily disagree. And to maintain a sense of humility, because as a wise friend of mine used to say, we could always be wrong. These are lofty goals which I practice imperfectly, of course. But that's the tone we strive for in these programs. Thank you for listening. Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston and supported by the Humankind Program Fund. What made me get into gardening was I tasted someone's tomato that they had grown. I mean, I like tomatoes, but this made me fall in love with tomatoes. And the person said, well, that's from my garden. That's what you get when you grow your own vegetables. That's how good they are. Fresh produce can be exquisitely flavorful, and eating enough fruits and veggies can deliver your health a real boost. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. something of a myth when it comes to the subject of healthy eating, some of us quietly groan at the prospect of a nutritious diet, as if it requires sacrificing the foods we really like. Physician and author Andrew Weil founded the Center for Integrative Medicine at the University of Arizona. Give people the experience of eating delicious tasting food that's healthy. You know, this is something that I've tried to do all, all my life, is to convince people that there's no opposition between food that's good and food that's good for you. Most people think eating healthy means giving up everything you like. And it's absolutely not true. It is possible to get tremendous pleasure out of foods and dietary patterns that conform to good nutritional science. And that would probably cheer old Hippocrates. He lived about 2,500 years ago in Greece and was admired by his contemporaries like the philosopher Plato. Hippocrates was the legendary physician, generally regarded as the father of Western medicine. He famously commented, let food be thy medicine and medicine thy food. But how relevant is this ancient observation today? I asked several nutrition experts, including Tufts University researcher Susan Roberts. So I think food is hugely important for health. You know, it's one of the few things that you can control yourself. You can't control your genes. You can't control the environmental pollution, but you can control what you put in your mouth. And, and all the evidence shows, and it, you know, there's just more and more evidence over time, that how we eat has a profound effect on, on our health you know, f- throughout life. And for some 21st century doctors like University of Arizona Medical School professor Andrew Weil, that venerable insight of Hippocrates still permeates the examining room. When I write treatment plans for patients, almost always the first element that I write is about dietary change, and I train other physicians to do that. And I've often seen dietary change produce uh, dramatic cures, resolutions of problems of longstanding, um, and it hasn't been tried before. 
One factor in this discussion is the prevalence of meat in the Western diet. Many of us significantly overestimate the amount of protein actually required by the human body. In fact, there are dangers in consuming too much protein. And the federal dietary guidelines, which are updated every five years, now recommend that particularly men and boys, about half the population, should reduce their protein intake. But American meat eating is on the rise. Average consumers are on track to eat more than 200 pounds of red meat and poultry per year. I think people in this culture eat too many animal products. Uh, I don't tell people to become complete vegetarians, but I think it would be very useful for most people to reduce their consumption of animal foods. There's very solid research showing that uh, the more uh, red meat that people eat, the increase in all-cause mortality. Um, I think beef is a particular problem that we eat too much, too much of. Uh, but I think it would be very useful for people to substitute vegetable protein for some of the animal protein that they S now Such eat. as come in beans? In beans, which are wonderful foods. They're cheap. They're, uh, you know, full of fiber, vitamins. They're uh, good sources of protein and of slow-digesting carbohydrate, which doesn't affect blood sugar the way that products made with flour do. But health recommendations like that must compete with the power of the marketplace, where the primary aim is profit, not promoting our well-being. With domestic meat consumption at 100 billion pounds per year, livestock production is a huge business. It would really help if the government subsidized fruits and vegetables and lowered the cost of them. You know, you go into, uh, if you're on a, uh, an Indian reservation in this country and go into grocery stores and supermarkets there, it's awful what's available in the way of produce. If there's, there's hardly anything there and what's there is wilted and awful looking. And same thing in poor neighborhoods in this country. Uh, you know, the fact is that, that many people can't afford fruits and vegetables, and the government could easily, you can't have the government telling us eat more fruits and vegetables, and at the same time, you know, working to make the cheap commodity foods available. You know, we, we have made the unhealthiest foods cheapest and most available. People eat what is cheap and what's available. And vegetables and fruits are simply out of the price range of many people. At the same time, America has long had a strong fascination with high-end cuisine. And this one is a terrine de canard, a duck pâté. And if you bake one of these concoctions in a dish, which is called a terrine in French, it's called a terrine. And if you unmold it like this one, it's usually called a pâté. But they're somewhat interchangeable. Sales of cookbooks are at an all-time high, and audiences for cooking shows on television are off the charts, and fewer people are cooking than ever. So people must be using these uh, cookbooks as coffee table or bathroom reading, and uh, the TV shows are entertainment doesn't translate into what's being done at home. The statistics that I've seen on how few American families sit down to even one home-cooked meal in a week are pretty dismal. Why do you think that's happening? Well, I, I, you, you, people say they don't have time to cook. That's a major one. Or it's too much trouble, or they don't know how to do it. That it's beyond them. And I think in some ways the cooking shows reinforce that, that it makes it looks as if this is the realm of professional chefs who have all this knowledge. Has uh, to be very exotic. Yeah, has to be very exotic. Um, 
one of our initiatives at our center is to figure out how to get more people back into the kitchen and cooking and uh, to show people, you know, it is possible to learn how to make quick, simple, easy, inexpensive dishes uh, that are healthy and you can make these in quantity that will last for a week. You don't have to master a whole huge number of them if you can get like four or five recipes down that you like and then share them with other people and get other people inspired to cook. It would be a very good trend. Emergency room doctors know that cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of death for Americans, and many physicians point to the traditional Mediterranean diet as an appealing and doable approach to cutting our risk of heart disease. Studies show that people who follow this way of eating tend to live longer. The Mediterranean diet emphasizes primarily vegetables and fruits, along with bean dishes and nuts, and healthy fats like olive oil. But the debate continues on how many servings of veggies and fruits people should consume. Dr. Victoria Mazes. I actually think that 10 a day is what most of us would encourage to be healthful. And one of the things that I remind people Sorry, let's just to clarify, 10 servings a day? Of vegetables and fruits a of day. Of vegetables right. and fruits. Now, that sounds like an insane amount until you remember what a serving size is, which we often also have a distorted sense of. So a big apple, big granny apple, might be two servings of, of fruit. Um, and a, a large salad like you might get with lunch could be five servings if it's a big salad or three or four if it's a smaller salad. And so, um, you know, I, I know a lot of health-conscious people where uh, a salad with some protein is one of their meals, either lunch or dinner, and that's a way of getting a lot of vegetables and fruits. You probably have to have some at every meal to make this work. So uh, I personally like to have fruit with my breakfast. I know people who eat vegetables with their breakfast. Yeah. the health effects of the foods we choose to eat and how increasing our intake of vegetables and fruits can cut our risk of developing serious medical conditions, including heart disease, diabetes, and some cancers. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. To learn more and to obtain an audio download or CD of this segment, Diet and Health, Part 2, please visit humanmedia.org. One of the things is that people are kind of uh, estranged from nature and mm -hmm. they're not really appreciating the whole cycle in which food arrives at our table. And that can be greatly changed by giving people direct experience yep. in growing their yep. own fruits and vegetables in the backyard or on the windowsill or wherever convenient. Can you talk about uh, some of the benefits of that? I'm a very passionate gardener. I grow a lot of my own food. I take great pleasure in that. Dr. Andrew Weil. 
I was laughing because I remember one time I had a group of medical students come to my home and uh, I took them out to my garden and I had some beautiful broccoli that was almost ready to pick. And I remember this one student's eyes bugged out that he had no conception that broccoli grew on a plant. I don't know what he thought, but he, I think he thought maybe it was something you pulled up like a beet from the ground or it hung from a tree. He just had never imagined that here was this thing that he's used to seeing in a store that was growing on a plant. Uh, I need you to come to my (laughs) raised bed in Massachusetts because I have not been successful with broccoli. Oh, I I grow massive broccolis in my backyard garden in Tucson. It's an easy one to do. I would be happy to consult with you on that. Or you call uh, an agricultural extension service uh, of one of the universities, and they'll tell you how to do it. Clearly, my broccoli technique needs some improvement. But when I'm able to get to the garden, I've had success with other vegetables and fruits, and it's kind of fun to be out there cultivating the plants, and even more fun to be plucking that fresh produce for dinner. You can grow um, uh, really remarkable amounts of food in relatively small space, so even in a a small backyard space, even in window boxes. Uh, Very satisfying to do that. The taste of freshly harvested vegetables is amazing. Uh, You know, often uh, I I love to cook, and I love to cook for people, and I don't like complicated preparations. You know, I like fairly simple things and bold flavors. And many people who eat my food are knocked out by the flavor, and it's not anything I did. It's that this was fresh. They probably never really had fresh broccoli or fresh lettuce from a garden. It tastes different. I recently made my way to a gathering of community gardeners at the inner-city Mattapan section of Boston, where I met Sue, a retired architect, and Nancy, a bookkeeper in the food industry. Why are you interested in growing food, and in particular doing so in a community garden? Well, growing food because it just tastes so much better than what you get in the grocery. Because it's fresh? Because it's fresh, and it's not... A lot of things you get in the grocery are hybrids developed to pack well and stay stay well for a long time, like your tomatoes. Like they're tomatoes that never get ripe. And, yes. Yeah. So tomatoes that are off the vine are more fragile, but they're so much better tasting. And green beans are like a whole different thing. <laughs> Fresh green beans are just not the same as what you get in the store. Far superior in, in the garden. In flavor, Absolutely. in flavor, right. And you can pick them at the perfect time, perfect yes. time. And they tend to grow pretty quick. You have to be out there every day to pick them at the right time, though, right? Well, but that's, that's part I of the... three kinds together so that they're always ripe. And community gardening, because it's not just about growing vegetables, and this will sound trite, but it's about growing relationships and getting to know people in your neighborhood that you might not otherwise interact with. So there are plants that are blossoming in the community garden. Are there any friendships that have blossomed for you? Ours. (laughs) And you've become good friends? Yes. Garden pals? Garden pals and and other things, too. Nancy's my go-to cat sitter. and (laughs) Yeah, I think we are good friends. And that's grown out of the... And and Nancy actually lives on a different street, so I probably would have never met her if she hadn't come around to the garden and gotten involved. So a lot of people 
find that when they do gardening, it actually promotes their physical fitness. It's kind of a form of exercise. It's what gets me out of bed some days. (laughs) For me, it's more about the meditation of it. You know, there's nothing like, it's less like therapy. It like helps clear your mind and center you. And we have one gardener who stops by after work every day and weeds. Just weeds, just clear the head. Important part of your health, I think, is it, today's world is so stressful that gardening is really, and weeding in particular, can be just like meditation, you know, because you just aren't thinking about anything except pulling out that little weed that you need to get out of the garden. With only one in 10 Americans actually eating the federally recommended level of vegetables and fruits for health, what are ways to make this easier for us, whether low-income Americans or others? I asked Scott Faber of the Environmental Working Group, which follows food policy in Washington. The last uh, farm bill, the five-year bill that authorizes all farm spending, um, included a new program that would provide more money to food stamp recipients who were using their their food stamp benefit to buy fruits and vegetables. So if you were using your electronic benefits transfer card or EBT card to buy fruits and vegetables at a farmer's market, you would get more money added to your EBT card. And it had the benefit of getting more low-income Americans to add fruits and vegetables to their basket. It also had the benefit of having that money flow directly to the local farmer. So it's been a a win-win for both for local farmers and for poorer consumers. Hopefully that will be expanded in the farm bill. I I mean, this is in a a, uh, $870 billion farm bill. We're talking about a $50 million program. So there's lots of room for growth. Um, uh, Other things we know work from experience is just changing, um, doing more to make fruits and vegetables uh, easy and ubiquitous when we shop. Um, And of course, you know, everybody walks through the produce section, it's the invariant right turn, as Malcolm Gladwell would put it, when we walk into the supermarket. Um, But we could do more to make fruits and vegetables available throughout the market at checkout so that consumers, uh, instead of grabbing the almond joy at, at checkout, although also delicious, Um, They might grab an apple or a pear or bananas or something else that might be a little bit healthier. Another trend that I think is hopeful is the development of the field of culinary medicine. Uh, The Roman physician Galen said that to be a good doctor, you have to be a good cook. Again, Dr. Andrew Weil. There is now, there are courses for doctors in, in cooking. Uh, and this is catching on around the country. And it'd be great if doctors could teach patients to prepare foods in a healthy way, including preparing vegetables. Well, this gets us to the theme of nutrition education in medical schools, Uh which we've talked about in previous interviews. I recall that the prominence of nutrition in medical curricula is increasing but is still woefully marginalized. Where, do, where does this stand? 
I think it's pathetic still, and when it is taught, it's taught like biochemistry, and it's forgotten as soon as the biochemistry exams are over. So the fact is that most physicians are functionally illiterate about nutrition. It's not their fault. They're not taught it. It is hard to imagine how something so obviously important to health could be so consistently slighted. We bring the leading nutrition researchers from around the country to present their findings to clinicians. Absolutely, it's a real science. And we know a lot now about what is an optimum diet and what are good fats and what are bad fats and what are good carbs, what are bad carbs, but that information is just not making it into the training of clinicians or to the general public. So that's got to change. Now, I, I heard a former dean of our College of Medicine at the University of Arizona was asked um, by one of our graduates, uh, what would he do to get nutrition education into medical school? And he said he wouldn't even bother trying because the undergraduate medical curriculum is so top-heavy with information that nobody's going to make space for anything else. He said he would make it a pre-medical requirement, which I think is very sensible. And he said, in fact, I think I'd replace organic chemistry with the requirement in nutrition. And then he said, I can't think of a single instance in my clinical career in which I used anything I learned in organic chemistry. <laughs> Dr. Victoria Mazes. And I agree. I think undergraduate would allow the space to really teach it and teach it well. And of course, most undergraduates are in their uh, late teens and early 20s and what a wonderful time for them for their own health and well-being to, to learn the principles of healthy nutrition. Because we know that if the, the health professional is doing the healthy behavior, whether it's food or exercise or stress reduction in their own life, they're much more successful in their recommendations uh, to, to patients. Because uh, they're more credible? Well, I think they also have a different understanding of, of what it might take, and they can point out some of the barriers and some of the uh, strategies to manage those barriers. So, for example, if someone has wrestled to uh, include meditation in their own life, they may talk about some of the ways they found it challenging or some of the resources they found. The same is true with uh, trying to incorporate a healthy diet. They may say which stores they go to or if they figured out tips to cook when they've had a busy day at work or whatever else it might be. So it's, it's credibility, but I think it's also um, practical knowledge. It's real. Um, so I was going to mention that uh, in the United States, the leading cause of death is heart disease. Uh, cardiologists, or heart doctors, have zero requirements for nutrition. And we know that uh, what people eat is an enormous factor in whether they develop heart disease or not. We're in the midst of a obesity epidemic in children that everyone's gravely concerned about, but pediatricians have no requirements for learning anything about nutrition. So we, we have some big uh, work cut out for us. We've looked at the medical effects of the typical American diet, including its escalating reliance on animal products. But there's another realm in which this pattern is taking a heavy toll. There are really strong environmental arguments for reducing meat consumption in our diet. Scott Faber of the Environmental Working Group. The process of raising the grain that's fed to the animals produces a lot, releases a lot of soil carbon and nitrate pollution into the air, which contributes to climate change. Um, the animals themselves release a lot of methane that contributes to climate change. Even Paul McCartney has joined the chorus trying to raise awareness of this threat. Think of too much livestock warming up the land.
plowing up all that corn and soybeans and fertilizing it also poses significant water quality problems. So if you live in um, the Corn Belt, um, in all likelihood, you have more than a safe amount of nitrate in your, certainly in your well water, if you're relying on a well, or even in your finished tap water, if you're being sold uh, tap water through a water utility, because there's simply so much fertilizer pollution in the form of nitrate in our finished drinking water, especially in the heartland. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, we forget about some of those sort of uh, second and third tier health effects from our meat production system. But one of the biggest ones is the amount of nitrate that's from fertilizer that's been added to the corn and soybeans to feed the animals. And that nitrate in our finished drinking water increases your risk of cancer, especially certain kinds of bladder cancer. We know that we have a problem in this country with clean drinking water. Physician Allie Cohen from Princeton, New Jersey. Certainly in third world countries and other areas where they can't get free, clean, um, you know, water, not only from bacteria, but from other, um, you know, heavy metals, um, you know, industrial chemicals that get into waterways. Um, and even in the United States, it's not just lead in Flint, Michigan, which we, you know, everyone's up in arms for good reason, but we have lead in hundreds of other communities, if not thousands of communities. We have chromium-6. We have, um, you know, just a lot of PFOAs and, and problems with nonstick chemicals getting into the waterway, even in Hooksick Falls, New York. So a lot of this is hitting home, but um, those chemicals do play a role in obesogenic or obesity, um, you know, changes. And we need to think about the water, which we drink nonstop all day, every day, is, a, is definitely a component of this issue. Um, so, you know, like I said, it's multifaceted. So what is out of balance in our dependence on this enormous system of industrial agriculture? Mo most people think, look, the industrial system of agriculture may not always be the cleanest, but it is feeding the country. We are producing food in ways that um, cause really significant environmental problems, and uh, needlessly so. Scott Faber in Washington. So there are, there are very modest changes that we could make in the production of these major uh, feed crops that would dramatically reduce the amount of water pollution, that would keep more carbon in the soil. There are very modest changes in how we raise animals that would reduce the amount of uh, methane emissions and certainly the amount of methane that's emitted from storage lagoons, as they're called. Which is a very pretty term for Ironic, something that's not really. at all very pretty. <laughs> Basically a pile of manure. Exactly. Part of the challenge is that uh, we simply aren't willing as a society, as customers, to tell the people who are making our, our, these animal products that they should grow the feed in ways that doesn't pollute our drinking water, and we should raise the animals in a way that's not only humane to the animals, but that doesn't increase the climate crisis. We should reduce the amount of meat that we consume in our diets. Um, it's good for our health. It's good for the environment. And frankly, if the whole world, as, it, as, the, as the rest of the world increasingly eats like us, if the whole world chooses to eat as much meat as we eat, 
it's there's really not much chance that we will re reverse the the climate crisis again we could do everything right on energy and our transportation but if everyone's eating as much meat as americans and the brits and the europeans are it's hard to imagine how we actually kind of you know start to move things in the right direction that's a lot on our plate trying to take care of our bodily and planetary health but the foods we choose can delicious way to do both. Listening to Humankind, I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Doug Sugars. Editorial assistance from Andrew Andresco, Maggie Mantis, Ken Rogers, David Cruz, and Kathy Graham. Webmaster Brian K. Johnson. Special thanks to Tony Buck. Our program is presented by Human Media. Program support provided by Shark Media. To purchase a CD copy of this program, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN. That's 1-800-5-L-I-S-T-E-N. Or visit our website where you can also obtain an audio download of this and our other programs and can hear selected episodes free. You can access free written materials related to this program as well. Our web address is humanmedia.org. Again, if you'd like to purchase a CD copy of Humankind by phone, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN, and our web address is humanmedia.org. And you can subscribe to our new series, The Spiritual Care Podcast. It's free at Apple Podcasts and elsewhere. This segment, Diet and Health, Part 2, is Humankind Program number 265. The executive producer is David Freudberg. This is Humankind. To hear more episodes of Humankind, you can subscribe to our free podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast player. A new episode each week. The podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you enjoy this program, be sure to leave us a kind review at iTunes and Stitcher. If you want to support the program, please visit humanmedia.org. And at the top of the homepage, click on How You Can Help. Again, our web address is humanmedia.org. Thanks.